This is Conrad Talman Kaminsky, and you're listening to the European Skeptics Podcast, the real ESP experience. Ooh. You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show in support of European-level actions within the skeptical movement. The ESP is run by individuals representing different skeptical groups from across the continent. This is episode number 86. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Jelena Levin and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Всем привет! Hejsan, hejsan! Wow! And we all together all again. All together again. Oh. The band is together. Great. Unbelievable. Fantastic. Where? Oh, yeah. guys, it's been forever. Been forever. Miss you guys. Yeah. We missed you too. And also, lots of excitement happened since. Oh, yeah? Yeah. What like, for example, we have our own Wikipedia page. Ah! <laughs> oh, my God. Yes, yes, yes. Hope it doesn't get deleted, though. No, no. Here I said no. it. Uh, but so it, a- anyone just... out there who wants to interview us or something <laughs> so that we get um, <laughs> some sources. other sources, other credible yeah. sources apart from our own podcast, yeah. please get in touch. <laughs> More that happens like New York Times, maybe, or yeah. BBC, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. just a smallish newspaper yeah. slash news. And we didn't create this ourselves. We had nothing to do with it. Uh, so uh, we're... Uh, very happy for this. Uh, it, it, yeah, it took a bit of bribery, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that wasn't true. So, uh, yeah, just just to be clear about that. No, it wasn't <laughs> okay. true. And yeah, we'd like to thank Adam for uh, making it available. Very nice. Adam is great. Oh, yeah. And um, while I was away, I mean, from the show, I was interviewed by a Polish video TV channel, mm-hmm. Racionalista wow. TV. Uh, because of my involvement in the the European Skeptics Congress. And we talked a lot about the show, Hungarian Skepticism and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it was enjoyable. Very good. I really liked it. Yeah. It's uh, the the Polish rationalists. Oh, really? Is it uh, in English, I suppose? Yes, it is in English. (laughs) And uh, I I believe it hasn't been released yet, but once it will be, Ah, we will link link it to... Oh, great. Cool. Cool for you. So that, that can be added as a source. <laughs> oh, as a source? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. Although it's still me talking about the show. But <laughs> well, uh, I don't know. Okay, so I see. It, so yeah, it wouldn't hurt else. if someone else did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. I, still, I still don't know what Susan Gerbic has to say about that, the, the, the fact that we got published. So I don't think she has anything to do with it. No, I don't think ah, so. It, I it was, was wondering about that, yeah. Uh, okay. All right. Well, Never mind. I'm sure we'll hear back. If it doesn't get deleted, then uh, it's up for we'll, improvement. We'll translate it to at least two languages, which is Swedish and Russian. <laughs> and Hungarian. Oh, sorry, three languages. I just thought of some reason I assumed, Anders, you've already done it, so, you know. No, 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 I haven't. No, no, I haven't had the time to join the show and uh, the recordings of the show. But yeah, I have translated a whole Wikipedia article. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Why not? Just happened. Okay, uh, what, what are we going to do today? Interview. Oh, interview. Oh, by the way, I haven't uh, listened to the, the latest episode yet. Mm. I, I, I need to catch up. Yes, it, it was a great interview with Leo Igwe. Who, oh, yeah. Who, by the way, got an award. Pontus, did he get an award? He did get an award. He got an award from the International uh, Humanist and Ethical Youth Organization mm. for distinguished services to humanism. And he got it just two days after our interview. I, I don't know if he knew about it or we, we didn't obviously know about it. We should have asked. But uh, Yeah, congratulations. So congratulations, Leo. It was a very good interview as well. Yeah. Well done, and um, yeah, it might have been a surprise for him too, but um, yeah. yeah, nevertheless. Yeah, he, he is doing fantastic work, as you, Absolutely those amazing, of you yeah. who have listened to the last show will know uh, what, uh, what a fantastic job he's doing. And if you haven't listened to it, please do as I will very, very soon. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, but this week we're going to release another interview. Yeah. This is an interview with Konrad uh, Talmon Kaminski, who's a philosopher and cognitive scientist. And uh, he's going to be a speaker at the European Skeptics Congress in Rotslav in September. So uh, this interview is one of the series of interviews we do with the uh, the speakers of the upcoming yeah. Congress so that people can familiarize themselves with uh, whatever they have to say in advance. So... Let's listen to that interview now. On every other episode, we usually interview a person representing an organization or project, either from a certain European country or stretching across borders. In anticipation of the upcoming 17th European Skeptics Congress, we'll interview speakers of this exciting event and try to help our audience familiarize themselves with their work prior to this international convention. This week we are talking to Konrad Talmond Kaminski, who is a philosopher and cognitive scientist and a former fellow of the Konrad Lorenz Institute for Evolution and Cognition Research in Vienna. He is now based in Poland and has done research on understanding the cognitive basis of supernatural beliefs such as superstitions, magic and religion. The result of some of that research can be found in his 2014 book Religion as a Magical Ideology. How the Supernatural Reflects Rationality. He currently continues his research into empirical implications of his proposed model, and he's one of the speakers at the upcoming European Skeptics Congress in Rotslav in September. Konrad, welcome to the show. Hi. This is a kind of topic that will be discussed in length, I believe, at the, the European Skeptics Congress, but how did you become interested in these subjects? And... Uh, why is it important? Hmm. Well, my background is originally in history and philosophy of science, right? That's what I did my undergrad studies in. And I guess I've been interested in how science works for quite a long time. And of course, what's interesting is that while humans are capable of doing science, they're also perfectly capable of doing religion. And the question that came to my mind and hardly an original question because it's come to many minds before that, of course, is what the hell is the difference? Why do people do one thing rather than the other thing or indeed end up doing both, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you often have these kinds of popular answers that, oh, you know, religious people are the ones who actually care about others and the people who are not religious are selfish Oh, the other possibility you sometimes hear is that uh, religious people are stupid and people who are not religious are intelligent. Now, the thing is that when you actually look at the data, you do find certain correlations, but they're a lot weaker and a lot more complex than that kind of broad stroke picture would suggest, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got these two different kinds of human social endeavors, you can call them, right? And human minds are capable of being involved with either. So the kind of approach that I came to this question with is what it is in how those endeavors are organized that engages human brains, human minds in those two quite different ways. So, so it's a little bit of how, how can the rational sit together with the superstitious things in your brain at the same time? And for lots of people, it still sort of makes sense. Well, again, that's, that's a broad stroke mm-hmm. uh, kind of way of putting it. I suppose the thing that I would say is neither is the rational as rational as we'd like to think it is, nor is the superstitious as superstitious as we'd like, as we'd like it to be. Uh-huh. Interesting. Yeah. There is this traditional picture of human rationality, which comes out of the uh, Enlightenment, that you know it's all to do with logic and always keeping in step with what the evidence is and so on and so forth. Whereas if you actually look at the psychological evidence, people being rational is actually a hell of a lot messier than that. Um, there's interesting work just right now being done by some people. Dan Sperber is one of the people who, who's doing this, talking about the way that human ability to present arguments seems to be really aimed not originally at getting at the truth, but simply at getting to convince others to believe what you are telling them, right? Mm-hmm. Point being that even if you have a bunch of people who are simply trying to convince others 
to whatever their view happens to be. If you organize that group properly, I'm not thinking about science, you can get the group as a whole to function in such a way that it will work its way towards a, an accurate picture of the universe. But it's about the organization, how you organize that discussion, in a sense. Mm. Fascinating. So, so oh, do you have an answer to that? How should it be organized? Or, or that's not the relevant question? Well, how should it be organized? <laughs> yeah. Do you have the answer? <laughs> we have the answer. Science does it, right? Yeah. Uh, the question is, how, how is it that science does it, right? And you know, it might be a fairly obvious thing to say, but an obvious element of the whole uh, picture has to be that in science you have this very unusual thing that one of the best ways to get ahead is to criticize an existing authority. And of course, you know, I'm not going to try and you know put science on the pedestal here. Very often it doesn't work like that. Mm -hmm. Very often you have the authorities defending themselves in all kinds of ways that in fact stop that from working. But very often it does. And very often science is, or the, the body of science, is the very authority that is being questioned. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You, you said something before that intrigues me. You said that we are not as rational as we think when we think we are rational, and we're not as superstitious as we think when we are at that end. So it's more like a spectrum. Can, can you elaborate on that a bit? Well, one fundamental thing which really comes out of what I've just been saying is that in both cases, it's the same cognitive mechanisms functioning, right? It's not that we have rational cognitive mechanisms and supernatural cognitive mechanisms. It's the same cognitive mechanisms simply put into different situations and coming up with different results, right? Mm -hmm. So I think the best way to approach this issue is by looking at one of the pieces of research that I'm working on right now. I've got a computer game. It's a very simple computer game, of course, set up, where what we're trying to do is we're getting people to move a cursor around on a screen using several buttons. And sometimes when they get to the end point on the screen, they get a point, and sometimes they do not add anything to the score. The aim of the game is to try and get as high a score as possible. And the thing is that... When people play this game, they try all kinds of strategies and you know, we'll let them play for five, ten minutes and they'll say, well, we haven't finished, we haven't figured out everything, give us a few more minutes and so on and so forth, right? Mm -hmm. But here's the thing, what they do, how they get to the end point is actually irrelevant. It's completely random. Mm -hmm. But people keep on trying to figure out strategies. Mm -hmm. They think, they think that, you know, give them a few more minutes and they will figure it out. And there is no solution because it is simply coincidental. But they, they still still try to find out if there is a pattern in, in the outcome based on what they do. Stereotypically, they think they have found part of the pattern. They haven't fully figured out what the pattern is. Mm -hmm. What you've got here is something that in discussions of superstition is talked about as a, a non-existent causal connection. Right? People think there's a causal connection when there is no causal connection. And it's actually very easy to get people to think that there is one. All you have to do is modify the probability that they will be uh, successful when they get to the end point. So, so this is part of pareidolia, right? We're always looking for patterns. So people think they find patterns even if there are none. Yes, that is an example of exactly the same kind of phenomenon. What we're dealing with is we are dealing with patterns out in the environment that we are trying to identify and we are trying to use to our own advantage. And the thing is that there's rarely any logic in giving up on looking for those patterns, right? Because, well, if there is no pattern and you're looking for it, you're in fact acting randomly. Uh, but if there is a pattern and you're not looking for it, well, there's a cost. You could have found that pattern and you could have succeeded thanks to that, right? Mm -hmm. It's a very uh, basic point, but this is simply a bit of research which tries to do that. Right? So the point is, there, I mean, there is this old distinction in logic, 
between deductive logic, which is standard logic way, and I say, John is human, all humans are going to die, so John's going to die. Mm-hmm. Well, when we're dealing with the world, right, we're using inductive reasoning where the premises do not guarantee the truth of the conclusion. How far has uh, research advanced since uh, Skinner's experiment with the pigeons that he actually called superstition, didn't he? Uh, yeah, the research that I'm doing is based originally in Skinner's famous study. The thing with Skinner was that he simply thought of human minds and minds in general, of course, because he also studied uh, animal minds, as simply patent-finding mechanisms, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the terms that I've talked about are the kinds of terms that I suppose he could have talked about himself. The problem, of course, being that he wouldn't say that there's such a thing as beliefs and so on and so forth, so you get this behavior. But let's not worry about that particular issue right here, because that's not, not the core. What has happened since then is that we're now looking at very specific mechanisms. Let me give you a wonderful example. This is a piece of research that I absolutely adore. Uh, Paul Rosen's work on contagion. Now, Paul Rosen, who is an, an American psychologist, has done wonderful research to show that people have this tendency to think that it is possible to transfer a quality simply by touching. So if something was touched by somebody, it can take on some of the qualities of that person, mm-hmm. right? There's a famous sort of experiment. Well, it's not really experiment. It's, it's just something to show how it works. What you do is if you have a large group of people, you bring along a jumper and you say, excuse me, ladies and gentlemen, here's a jumper. Uh, who'd be willing to put it on for $10? And everybody goes, yeah, sure, $10 to put on yeah, a jumper. Sure. And then you go, well, I should tell you it's used. Somebody owned it previously, but it has been very thoroughly cleaned in a, you know, in a laundry, in a proper chemical laundry. It's perfectly clean. Who's willing to, to, uh, to wear it? Pretty much everybody's still willing to wear it. And then you say, well, I should also say that it was actually owned and worn by, and then you name some locally well-known a murderer, right, mm-hmm. disappear. Because for many people, that jumper still has on it the evil yeah, it's, of that person. It's tainted by the former owner, yeah. And it's right. a gut reaction, so it's not... Very powerful, and yes, you could call it a gut reaction, but it's perfectly rational, actually, when you think about it. Because the rules of this contagion that Rosen talks about is, well, It's transferred by contact. Minimal contact is enough to infect, shall I say, the whole thing or another person. A negative effect is usually more powerful than a positive effect. The effect is permanent and so on and so forth. So here's the thing. This kind of behavior would make a lot of sense if we were living in a universe where there was something invisible that could be transferred by contact, minimal contact even, and was dangerous. Hmm, do we live in that kind of universe? Of course we We do. We do, we do, we do. Bacteria, viruses, Hmm. right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what Rosen found was that there's this very fascinating mechanism in the mind which protects us against contagion by bacteria and viruses. Mm -hmm. As a side effect, it means that people tend to also avoid, for example, things that were owned by somebody who's evil, or on the other hand, want to collect things by someone who was considered to be good or famous or talented. Oh, and now we're at the point of uh, gathering relics and stuff. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Oh, amazing. Yeah, I know, exactly, right? But my question is, does it require any amount of conditioning prior to making such a decision of not wearing uh, someone else's uh, clothes. I mean, that's obvious that because of uh, issues with uh, hygiene, we do have an innate rejection. But when you mentioned these pieces of information given to people, like he was a a well-known murderer, 
that counts as conditioning, right? No, no. Look, the problem with conditioning, the problem with Skinner was that he thought he treated the human mind as if it was a tabula rasa, right? As if there was mm -hmm. nothing there except a learning mechanism, a general learning mechanism. Yeah. Now, we know the human mind is nothing like that. Yeah. There's a lot of very specific mechanisms that come online very early and very dependably. doesn't matter much what the upbringing is like and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. To give you another example of this kind of behavior that is explained by Rosen, there is a famous pilgrimage site in Bosnia-Herzegovina, which is called Medjugorje. It's a Catholic pilgrimage site. And behind the church there, there's this giant statue of crucified Christ. And every day, people line up to the statue. And you've got people praying and kneeling and so on and so forth. And when you get to the front of the queue, you stand up, you take out of a little plastic baggie a few pieces of fabric, and you use that fabric to dab the knee of the statue. Now, the way that people explain it is that what happens is that from the knee come Mary's tears. Okay. Because Mary held, supposedly, Jesus by this part of the body when he was crucified, right? And she was crying. Mm -hmm. And supposedly, miraculously, tears appear there. And what people say is that if you gather this material on those tissues, on that fabric, you can then take them back home to whoever was too sick to come to Medjugorje. And that, in effect, these tissues, this material, will have a healing quality. It will help heal those people, right? So, again, contagion, you touch the fabric to the statue in the appropriate place. It gets this appropriate magical quality and can be then taken to help somebody a long way away. Mm. Yeah. So, so, what you're saying is that, from some point of view, this is perfectly rational, in a way, right? So is, is that the sort of the essence of, of your model? Well, perfectly rational. I wouldn't want to say that because I don't think there's actually anything <laughs> which, which is <laughs> rationality, right? But there are a number of very good reasons, let's put it that way, right? There are a number of very good reasons why people behave that way. It's not that the brains have, you know, broken down in some way or something like that. No, no from an evolutionary point of view, yes. it's not yes. irrational. From an evolutionary point of view, there's a very good reason why it is that. Mm. And the standard explanation that you get in cognitive science of religion of most of the phenomena connected to uh, religion is primarily going to be one of evolutionary side effect, of a byproduct. Mm -hmm. right? There are certain cognitive capabilities which evolve to deal with other things, such as bacteria and viruses. But they have, as a side effect, produced behavior and beliefs, which are typically religious, magical, etc. So if you go to your book, yeah. Religion as a Magical Ideology, is this the, the main model that you present in that book? Well, it's part of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's basically three different things going on in that book. Uh, one is that I talk about that. By the way, this is by no means original to talk about you know, uh, cognitive byproducts as an explanation for magical beliefs and behavior, right? This, this is very much standard in the kind of field that I'm working in right now. Uh, the other thing that I talk about is uh, whether and to what degree uh, religion has been able to function as a means to get people to behave more pro-socially. Uh, because I mean, that's the other side of the picture you, you very often get. The way in which religion appears to have functioned in many mm -hmm. societies to try yeah. and strengthen cooperation. Well, I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. And the first one that I really like is the work on what's known as uh, supernatural supervision, supernatural monitoring. We know that people behave better, this is a very general, very much a generalization, but a useful one at this point. People behave better when they think they are being observed. There's a mm -hmm. very simple research that was done which shows this. Uh, people who work in, you know, in academic departments will be familiar with the fact that there's usually a staff room 
where there is a coffee pot and you, you can make yourself coffee, etc., etc. And often what happens is that the coffee is bought by somebody in the department using money that people simply put in a tin. You know, if you have a coffee, you put in some uh, money and then there's at the end of the month enough money to buy more coffee. Mm-hmm. So the very simple piece of research that somebody did on their fellow academics was that they had a piece of paper saying, you know, please donate this money to uh, have more coffee next week. And they made one modification, which was that they changed what appeared at the top of the piece of paper where this message was. For one week, they had a picture of flowers. The next week, they had a picture of two eyes staring right at you. Then again, flowers, then eyes, then flowers, then eyes. Now, this was a picture on a piece of paper, a printout. So nobody could think that this was actually somebody looking at them, right? Yeah. But nonetheless, there was a very significant change in the uh, amount of money coming in week by week, with a lot more money coming in when there was a picture of the pair of eyes. Mm. So the explanation that's given to that is that people subconsciously felt like they were being observed, monitored, and behave more pro-socially, in other words, handed in more money. Hmm. <laughs> right? Interesting. So what the hell does this have to do with religion? Well, every society had the problem that you couldn't put a policeman on every corner. But <laughs> the policeman doesn't have to be there. It's enough that people think that the policeman is there. So if people think that their behavior is being watched by someone who is going to judge it, they will behave more pro-socially. And that someone could be a policeman or the thought of a policeman or a, a godlike figure or anyone else. Makes a lot of sense. So uh, there's a study done of a bunch of kids in a school. Again, the control, uh, the experimental group. The control group was told the story, I forget it was, some, something as usually neutral, but the experimental group was told the story that in their school there is the ghost of a boy who died and who now wanders the corridors. And right after being told the story, they were asked to participate in an exam where they were given the opportunity to cheat, but in such a way that the cheating could then be quantified. (laughs) Guess what happened? The kids who had just been told the story of the ghost kid significantly less than the others. Even though, if you actually ask them if they believed in this ghost, they would say, well, no, no, probably not, but no, I don't think so. But there was, there was the idea of this, this figure watching over them in the back of, back of their heads. Wow, yeah. that's amazing. That was enough to make them not cheat so much. Huh. Interesting. That's one line of research, which I find fascinating. Another line of research that I find very interesting is to do with uh, what's known as costly signaling. Imagine the following situation. Imagine that you've been given the opportunity to join a club. In one situation, you can join the club for free. In the other one, the cost is quite prohibitive. $1,000, let's say. But you've joined the club. Now... Once you're a member of the club, the thing is that you have to work with the others to maintain your membership. But of course, you could simply take the benefits of being a member, ignore the others, and just stay in there for as long as you can, and then say, forget it. But of course, the thing is that you're much less likely to do that if you have actually just spent $1,000, because you lose that money. Yeah. Okay. So what the hell does this have to do with religion? Well, think about the uh, mechanism of the sacrifice. Somebody comes into the temple, brings the best goat, kills it. They have lost the goat. The idea is that what they've in effect said to their society is they've said, look, I am committed to being a member of the society so much so that I'm willing to pay this cost. Mm-hmm. You can trust me, and I can trust you. Hmm. Interesting. And again, you can see, so to speak, the evolutionary logic behind that, right? The people do not have to be aware of what they're doing. They don't have to be consciously thinking that way, but that's how it works. 
And, you know, it, it has other consequences as well. I mean, I if I try to find a connection uh, to politics with everything, when we think about transparency in a political setup, obviously te- transparency has an inhibitive effect on politicians doing nasty stuff. They are being monitored. Yeah, they are, they are being watched over. They're being, being constantly monitored. And that, that's... Absolutely. It just starts to make even more sense than before. Wow, <laughs> okay. Yeah, very good. <laughs> so, I mean, you've got these two sides of the story. Lots of research on both of those. What was hopefully more original in my book was that I brought in what you could call the epistemic side of things. You remember how I said that uh, the policeman doesn't have to be on every corner. You simply have to believe that there is a policeman on every corner, right? Yeah. Well, there's a problem. If you tell somebody that there's a policeman on every corner and they walk out on the street and they look around, they're going to find out that's actually not true. Yeah, but what about the speed cameras? Speed cameras, yeah, of course, yes, yes, yes. But my point was a, a much more low-tech uh, solution. If you have the right kind of belief about the monitoring mm-hmm. uh, agent, such as they're hard to observe, they function in ways that are hard to predict, etc., 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 to retain this kind of belief long-term in a society. Mm-hmm. God works in mysterious ways. God works in mysterious ways. That's exactly right. Because if God works in mysterious ways, it's very hard to provide clear-cut evidence that he doesn't. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, That's that's, true. That's very impossible. (laughs) You've got people criticizing uh, religion and saying, well, you know, it's it's so irrational to have these beliefs that are so hard to provide evidence for or to disprove, and this would not be accepted in science. Yeah, right. Of course it wouldn't be accepted in science, but this isn't science, this is religion. It works in a very different way, it has a very different function, right? If this pro-social motivation of pro-social behavior is, picture is correct, that function is not connected to their truth, right? It doesn't matter if God exists, it matters that people believe in him and behave better because of that. Hmm. So you do not want, in fact, these kinds of beliefs to be chosen on the basis of whether they're true or false. And I'm talking pragmatically at this point, of course, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. You want them to be chosen on the basis of whether they motivate people to behave more pro-socially. But the problem, of course, is that people... When they think that they, they hold a belief, it means they believe that it's true. So what is it that a lot of people, myself included, would like to think that I'm perfectly rational in everything I do? Why is that so attractive a thought, to think that you're rational? Oh, wow. Yeah, it's a good question. I don't think it's equally attractive to everyone. No, maybe not. Maybe not. There are people who are who are actually proud of not being rational. Hmm. Mm. I, do, I don't get along with those very much. <laughs> <laughs> so much of a difference is there here between people in general wanting to believe that they're rational and people in general wanting to be to believe that they are talented, good, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. But why is rationality being considered good? Yeah. Good, yeah. Well, I think we really come back to the stuff that I started off with, talking about the work that Sperber did. What we've got with humans is a situation <laughs> where most of how we learn is actually learning from others. Right? You've got, you sometimes have people saying, oh, you know, I'm a perfectly rational person. I myself find the evidence for everything I believe in. Well, to use an Australian term, that's bullshit, right? <laughs> it's simply yeah. not the case, right? Yeah. And yeah. What's more, it's not how scientists work. Science works because people are functioning in such an institution, a social institution, where they can trust and rely on the results of others. Hmm. If everybody had to test everything for themselves, there would be no scientific progress. Yeah. Everybody would have to start from nothing. Nobody would have an iPhone uh, if that hap- was the truth. We'd probably have locks. Still, right? <laughs> yeah. Right? 
No, it isn't that also true that that's one of the very things that makes human different from other animals. We have means of learning from each other in a way that a lot of other, well, most other, well, all other animals don't have, I think. That seems to be the fundamental thing. We've got massive cumulative culture. Yeah. Right? Uh, we're not the only animals that do, but the others have it to a very minor degree if they do have it. Yeah, if you uh, don't have language or, or even spoken language and even more written language, then it's very difficult. Language is so useful, right? Because <laughs> you don't have to watch me all the time to see whether, for example, you should gather the red mushrooms. I can simply tell you, listen, do not gather the red mushrooms. They're poisonous. And you go, right, good, red mushrooms, poisonous, done, thank you. Yeah. Easy, right? Very low costs of learning that. But there's a problem. What if it so happens that the red mushroom is actually delicious? And I just told you that to cheat you. To <laughs> get yeah, yeah. So on the one hand, you have to trust me. But on the other hand, you have to have the capacity to test, to verify what I'm saying. And there are two different ways that people can go here. They can test the content or they can check the source. Right? Am I generally trustworthy? Do I have a reason to lie to you? Etc. etc. Am I actually competent in the area? These are all good reasons to be more or less critical of what I'm saying. And by the way, small kids can do this, right? Small kids are able to actually judge how trustworthy somebody is on a particular topic, which I find amazing. Right? How so? How so? Well, if they are provided the same piece of information by different people, right, depending on whether they appear to be competent, whether they have an interest, an apparent interest in telling you something, kids will be more or less likely to believe them mm -hmm. and then act on that uh, belief, right? Just mm -hmm. how it's checked, right? So that's checking the person. You can also check the content, right? Checking the content, you know, is it consistent with other things yeah. that no, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And here's the thing, right? If you look at science, it has really focused on checking the content. If you want to accept some result, again, we're dealing with human endeavors, so nothing's perfect, right? Far from yeah, it. Yeah. The basic idea is you really focus on what the claim is and what the evidence for the claim is. You ignore, supposedly, double-blind reviews and all that kind of thing. You ignore who the source is. Yeah. On the other hand, in the case of religion, there's a lot of mechanisms functioning there to minimize the impact of the content and maximize uh, the importance of who the sources of the information. And if it comes from the top... Well, an accepted authority, right? An accepted authority, which is, yeah, yeah. yeah it can... Your parents, it very often is. Yeah, yeah. But this is the interesting thing here, right? If you had a social endeavor where the content is really moved into the background and being critical towards that is in many ways minimized, you can have a tradition of beliefs which is maintained simply on the fact that the authorities are willing to propagate it, yeah. whoever authorities are, independently of the truth or falsehood of those claims, which again is exactly what you want pragmatically if the function of those beliefs is to maintain uh, cooperation because that function is not connected necessarily to their truth. It's connected to them being believed. That's all. Yeah. So this is, this is how science and these kinds of beliefs uh, stem from the same kind of phenomenon, but uh, they deviate at a certain point, yeah. Well, and the difference is in social organization, how our minds are organized. Yeah, yeah. And getting back to the, the idea of being monitored, it's, it's, it's fascinating how it works in science that uh, the very fact of being monitored will keep people away from, from cheating in their experiments and stuff because they know exactly that someone can come around and try to disprove their results and try to rerun the experiment to see if the results are the same. And if it doesn't work, then they're caught. I think you're right about that. And I think what this makes clear is how important it is also that 
and this is becoming much more and much more common in a lot of uh, sciences, that when you actually publish, you also publish the raw data. Yeah. I'll give you an example of this. Just the very last thing I've published is a little commentary on, on a quite a cool paper which looks at the connection between religiosity and pro-sociality, right? But what I was able to do with a colleague of mine is go back, look at the raw data, and dig out some more interesting results that the original study had not noticed that, that cast it in a somewhat different light. And that was only possible because that raw data was available to everybody on the net. And that's great. Yeah. Well, this is all fascinating, and I'm pretty sure that it can be explained at length in a book which I'm sure you did in your book. But how much of this will you be talking about at the European Skeptics Congress? All of it. I'll be trying to look at the difference between science and religion from this cognitive point of view. Right? Because very often what happens is, well, we've talked about trying to explain religion and science in terms of different personal characteristics, which is a non-starter. Uh, but another explanation you sometimes get is, well, It's all about the different kinds of beliefs that you get in science and religion. Well, yeah, you get very interesting standard differences in the kinds of beliefs that appear in science and religion. But if you're looking at the whole thing from a cognitive point of view, you have to ask yourself, well, why? Why do they have these kinds of characteristics? And in the case of religion, the kinds of mental mechanisms that we have, the kinds of cognitive me mechanisms that we have, lead these kinds of beliefs that you see in religion to be plausible, to be likely to be communicated to others in society, and so on and so forth. Right? So, in fact, when we look at what religious beliefs are, we are actually learning We're finding out about what our minds are like, because our minds are the kinds of minds that produce and reproduce these kinds of beliefs. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. So uh, where can people go to find uh, out more about you and follow your work? <laughs> to, to my university? <laughs> <laughs> no, I was thinking online, maybe, if you have a website or a blog or something like that. At this point, I don't have much of a web presence. I used to have a blog which is inactive at this point, mm -hmm. uh, the uh, Daisy Diamond. Yeah, but, but your book is in English, right? I understand. Absolutely. It's absolutely so, so, so they can, they can buy the book. So I've I got to be honest with you. The book, the pricing is ridiculous. And this is another topic to have with anybody who's working in science, <laughs> uh, scientific publishers. Uh, the book is only available in hardback. And the price is something in the order of $50, $60, uh, $60 right? Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Uh, secondhand, it's available cheaper. But frankly, uh, I've been less than pleased with uh, Routledge on this uh, matter. What I would suggest, actually, is that if people find this approach interesting, they should really start off by looking at a paper of mine which sets up the fundamental points. Uh, the paper came out in The Monist a few years ago, and the title is Forgotten Country, but Not Necessarily Truth. Uh, so the if basic he... outline of what I've been talking about is in that paper, and that's like 10, 12 pages, and it's available on the internet for free. Mm -hmm. Oh, then we can share it on our website uh, among the show notes. So that's a much cheaper option than going and buying the book. You know, if people want to do that, go for it. But frankly, I don't know if I would do it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but okay. if people want to buy or, or maybe if you go to a local library and look up your book, it's called Religion as a Magical Ideology, How the Supernatural Reflects Rationality. Right? Indeed. Yeah. That's okay. Right. Good. Great. Or probably if they start uh, looking up your name on Google Scholar, uh, they will probably find the, the article as well. But we'll definitely link to the article among the show notes. Great. Okay, wonderful. And it would be fantastic to, to go on with this eye-opening conversation. But uh, I'm afraid we, we're going to have to wrap it up soon. But... There is another way of uh, getting to know more about your uh, theory and, and this system of yours, the, the model, of uh, coming to the European Skeptics Congress and listen to your talk. Mm -hmm. I hope <laughs> you will there. 
Uh, we will be there, absolutely, and we hope our listeners... We will definitely be there. And we hope a lot of our listeners will go there too. So it's the, in September in Rockslav, 22nd to 24th of September. Rockslav is, is quite a nice city, so uh, I think it's worth a trip. Yeah, absolutely, yes. Yeah, and there, there's going to be lots of brilliant people there, including Konrad Tamon Kaminski. And I'd like to thank you for, uh, for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Blast. Thank you very much. Can't wait to see you in person. Thank you. Bye-bye. Right. Bye-bye. Okay, that was a rare one. We very rarely get that that philosophical. Yeah, it was very interesting, yeah. So, very interesting. When it actually makes sense, you you have to think about stuff very deeply, but it, when, when you put it all together, it actually starts to make sense. Mm. And, uh, yeah, really looking forward to, to hearing his talk at the, at the Congress. So, before we go, I'd, li- I'd like to encourage our listeners to get in touch with us. If you liked the show, if you like the interviews, um, please get in touch. Leave a review somewhere, wherever you, you'd like to, iTunes, uh, Stitcher, uh, SoundCloud... But please do not leave a review if you don't like the show. It's, <laughs> it's very important that you don't. Uh, no. Yeah. But do go um, to our website at theesp.eu and check out also the events calendar where there are lots and lots of stuff happening. And as I mentioned last week, the Edinburgh Skeptics are doing the Skeptics on the Fringe in Edinburgh. It, it's ongoing uh, still. It'll, it takes it's all on for over three weeks, and it's really a fantastic thing. You should go there and look at that. And also, you may want to give us a little bit, a little contribution to our PayPal account by clicking on the donate button. That would uh, encourage us to keep on doing this uh, show. Yeah, and also, if you want to get in touch with us, there, is, there are many ways to do it, one of which will be to tweet. And our Twitter account is at espodcast underscore eu, or email us. Our uh, email address is info at theesp.eu. Um, you can also go to our website, which is theesp.eu, fill in the contact form on there. And some people also get in touch with us via Facebook, um, just direct messaging. We normally... Uh, they respond quite quickly so please do that and please share our content so whatever you see on twitter on facebook uh on soundcloud please do share because that's how we get the word out there yeah that's that's, right. that helps a lot yeah that is right mm-hmm. all right and oh before we go, we do promote the European Skeptics Congress, but there is another event that uh, we like to promote because we will be there. That is QED. Yeah. Yes. Like and we talked about it. We talked about it last week. Exactly. And uh, now QED has a very nice promo piece. So let's listen to that before we go. QED 2017 is fast approaching, and you don't want to miss it. In the past, QED has brought you the Arrows of Time, the origin of recording, an escape from the Westboro Baptists, the sex bias of sex science, and all manner of other science, pseudoscience, activism, slacktivism, and more. Plus, insects for breakfast. Mmm, yum. QED 2017 takes place on the 14th and 15th of October in Manchester, England. We've already announced speakers like Sophie Wilson, co-inventor of the ARM computer chip, Simon Singh, who will be showing how to crack a genuine Enigma machine, Phil Scrayton talking through the real-life cover-up of the Hillsborough tragedy, and physicists Helen Chersky and Tim O'Brien. We'll have a live show from the Parapod Boys, and the whole event will be emceed by ace magician Dave Anik. Have some laughs, meet some new friends, make new connections, all for only £109, including all the main stage talks, panels, podcasts, workshops, our Saturday night entertainment, and lots more. Check out qedcom.org for details. We'll see you in October. Okay, and this is an event that we are also looking forward to. Absolutely. No, yeah. You know, going to congresses or conferences with other skeptics is the best thing you can do, basically. I, I, and both for the European Skeptics Congress and QED, meeting other skeptics face to face over a beer or whatever you want, uh, and running around in a big event where there's a lot of action, it is great. It's fantastic. 
you should all go. That's if we're still here, because if North Korea fires the missiles, you know, just <laughs> just saying. Yep. Okay. Okay. On that cheerful note. Because, <laughs> you know. Well, yes, yes. But I do agree with Pontus. Do it while you can. <laughs> while the world is still spinning sure. and it's still here you know. You know, let's, let's enjoy. the world let's will enjoy. be actually the, the, the earth will be spinning the earth long will be spinning. after long after we're gone the, the only thing that will be gone is uh, humans so yeah. yeah I find it so ridiculous when people people start being worried about the earth and, no, and the earth save the earth save the planet oh You're right. come on it'll the, save the itself planet doesn't need saving it's it's ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. From ourselves, actually. Okay. So, on that very, very positive note, <laughs> I'd like to um, put an end to the show. And, I mean, not forever, not for good. It's uh, for, for just <laughs> a week. And for your um, joining me, I'd like to thank both of you, Jelena and Pontus. Always happy well, to be here. it was great. Yeah, great to hang out with you, even though not for long. But uh, yeah, next time. <laughs> next time it'll be a longer episode, uh, longer or episode, with yeah. more yeah. news and things like that. Yeah, and hopefully it will feature the, the three of us um, again. So until next week, goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast.eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe. Good evening, everyone. Oh, no, no, that's not oh, that show. Just um, wrong gentleman. show. Wrong show. Wrong show. Sorry, wrong show. Yeah. You're listening. No. <clears throat> and then. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, Peridoil, Peridoil, I always have a problem pronouncing that word. Uh, This is going to be a nightmare to edit. Yes, I was thinking the same. 90 minutes, but it's going to take ages. Yeah, okay. We should be more disciplined, really.